I know. Okay, you should be over there. Okay. I accept that. I acknowledge that. The next week, I come in, and they're still in that room. What does that tell you? The information that they know, that I communicated, has zero value. It's the same thing that we have here. Saying Jesus is my Lord, and not actually, that doesn't mean anything for your life, that confession has zero value. Don't hear me. Hear what Jesus is saying in this place. Look at your Bibles. Look down. That's what he's saying. Simple, right? You don't have, this, this doesn't take calculus. A special person who learned something to figure this out. That's what Jesus is trying to say in this place. If, as a, as a person, who, as a believer, if you are like one of those people who is amazing with the Bible, the first thing that comes to your mind is, are you kidding? Like the Bible teaches, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. In fact, let's go there. It's Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So in fact, the Bible actually teaches Confession is a necessary part of salvation. Confession is how salvation starts. But it's not just confession, right? It says there's a belief in the heart. And there's an outspeaking of that faith in Christ, first of all. Second of all, Jesus is not teaching in, in this place. Christians will be people who never call me Lord, Lord. That is not the point here. The point of Jesus here is just that confession is not everything. And this is the one thing I want you guys to really understand. According to Romans 10, if you believe in your heart and confess that Jesus is Lord, you know what happens next? You will actually live according to what Jesus presents to be the right way to live. If you believe in your heart, truly, no problem. But anyone can come in this room and say, you know what? I love the message today. I want to believe in Christ. He's my Lord. Anybody could do that. Anybody, even people who never show up at church, who never read the Bible could say, I'm a Christian. Right? Because we can confess. We can externally show ourselves as believers. And Jesus is saying, what people listen to you, if people listen to you and say you're a Christian, that is not what validates you as a Christian. It's a true faith. It's a true new life. It's a union with Christ himself. It's an identity change. It's literally like you are dead and you come to life as a new creature, united to Christ. So Jesus is saying, it's not just confession. It's not just some kind of 
you're not a, like in a fan club of Christ. You're actually a believer. You are actually someone who is transformed by what Christ has done on the cross. So true belief always leads to confession and a new life. And with the heart, one believes and is justified. God calls that person a believer. God declares you are just when you believe in Christ in your heart. Because of what Christ has done on your behalf, your, your sins are paid for. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer dead. You're no longer condemned. Your condemnation is lifted. Who is to condemn? It is God who justifies. That's Romans 8. No one can condemn you, not the devil, not, your, not you, even yourself can condemn yourself because of your brokenness. Not other people, no one can condemn you when God calls you just. But that comes with a true belief in the heart. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That, that belief does not remain in your heart. It's not a theoretical idea. Everything in our lives, we live in the body. Sometimes we can treat our faith our, in, in our minds only. Does that make sense to you guys? Let me elaborate a little bit. Right? We can behave a certain way only when we show up at church. Right? But you will be, whatever age you are, guy or girl, 100% of the time. You will be the person who dresses a certain way 100% of the time. That's your bodily real life right there. And if I told you to dress another way, you wouldn't. Because that doesn't go well with you. You really consider that very important so you won't change it. You speak a certain way everywhere you go. You speak like a Christian when you come to church, maybe. I'm not saying everyone. I'm not even looking at your life. I don't even know what you're like, to be honest. You only know what's in your heart. You only know if you're sincere everywhere or not. Only you know that. But Jesus is telling us, we can be like that. This identity that we have in Christ could be just like you have a box for it. When other people are looking at you, you behave like a Christian. When it's comfortable, you behave like a Christian. It's a Sunday thing. It's whenever you open the Bible. It's whenever you feel like it. But then you're yourself the rest of the time. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. You are a Christian first. Before anything, before you're American, before you're male or female, before you're anything, you're a Christian first. You are a citizen of heaven. Do not let that be a side hustle thing. That's not your part-time nature. If your nature has changed, it has changed for good forever. And it's going to affect all of your life. It's going to get into every area of your life and it's going to get into every second of your week. And it's going to affect your friendships. You might lose a lot of friends. It's going to affect your family life. Like Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, right? Family members might have to separate from one another, both literally 
physically or maybe spiritually only. They, they might be able to live in peace, but they will not have the same faith. So whoever has been transformed in the heart will be set apart, will be made holy, will be separated from the rest. So apparently the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's not saying here you'll be saved by confession and Jesus is coming here before Paul and saying he's the main one we listen to to begin with. But Paul is not contradicting his Lord, obviously. Jesus is not coming here and saying confession means nothing. No, these two realities are true at the same time. They're in conflict with one another. True confession is every Christian needs that to be saved. But it comes from not just confession or ideology or mindset, but rather from a true belief in the heart that overflows into that action, into that reality. And the next thing I want to remind you, or as we go through scripture, the second thing I want you to see in this idea is everyone will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God. Everyone will confess. Right. I don't have it up there. I was looking for it. Sorry. Uh, it's Philippians 2 that I'm going to. Yep, there it is. This is what the word says. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everyone, believers, non-believers, angels of light, the devil, and the demons, all of them will confess Jesus is Lord. Not only that, when Jesus was on earth, the demons used to confess Jesus is Lord. He literally told them not to make him known. James says they believe that and they actually shiver, shudder. They're scared of the reality of the presence of God, yet they can't be saved. It doesn't help them become repentant. Non-believers will confess when they see Christ in his glory after death, or when he appears in his kingdom while they are alive, either way, that he is Lord. It doesn't, it's too late to be saved. So it's not a confession that is like forced on us. Recognizing, oh, there is a door right there means nothing until I could actually recognize it as a door and open it to walk through it every time. So mere confession does not save. This is a scary thing to hear. I mean, think about ourselves. What does this mean? Could this mean that when I say Jesus is my Lord, that I am just faking it? 
Jesus is saying, yes, it could mean that. But if you're hearing his voice right now, it's not too late. He is communicating this to us because God knows our hearts. Just because we are gathered in this church, it doesn't mean we're all being sincere. Not only that, if we are being sincere, we need to really have the fear of God in us so that we continue in our sincerity. So nobody's exempt, including me, even though I sound like I'm exempt. I'm just communicating what Christ preaches, who is perfect, who is exempt. So Jesus is saying to us, if you think you're standing, be careful that you don't stumble. And if you've been faking it up to this point, be careful. God knows your heart. God knows those who are His. God knows those who confess Jesus as Lord from a true faith versus those who are just showing faith, who are just able to deceive people. You can even deceive an entire population. But with God, there is no, you can even deceive yourself. You can't deceive God. If you tell yourself enough number of lies repeatedly, you will believe it eventually. And you couldn't tell the difference between what you're lying and what you're telling the truth. Jesus says, it doesn't work like that with God. So today, there might be some of us who are even confused. Am I sincere or am I not? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the past. Worry about today. Jesus is saying, you should be and you can be sincere. If that makes sense. Jesus is actually preaching this because he just communicated to us what true godliness looks like. And he's saying, be careful that you don't deceive yourself because you come to church, because you read the Bible, because you grew up in a Christian home, or because of anything else that you, you tell yourself. And that's basically where he goes next. He says, many will come to me, right? Many will come to me, he says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is preaching this words, this sermon to a crowd of people who've seen him teach, who've heard him teach, who actually seen him do miracles, and they are following him. You know what that makes them? The church. Followers of Christ. Even though they weren't called Christians then, they are Christians. As far as anybody could tell. And he's telling to this group of people, just know that these kinds of things of casting out demons or doing works of miracles or prophesying in the name of Jesus is not what Christianity is about. It's not what it means to follow Christ. You see those things? They say, what they say is, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and did many mighty works in your name. What's the common denominator in those three claims? They're saying, Jesus, we're saved because we did these things in your name. What's the common denominator? The name of Christ. 
it's obvious that name of Christ will cast out demons. You can prophesy in the name of Christ whether it's true or false. You can, like, you can actually believe you know the word of God by calling the name of Christ. Or mighty works could be done by you in the name of Christ. That doesn't mean anything. The name of Christ is powerful. It's obvious. I mean, Jesus literally received from his disciples. They came to him. His apostles came to him and said, Lord, we saw people who don't follow you casting out demons and we forbade them. And Jesus says, don't. Stop. I'm not having a conversation with you. Stop. So this is what he, he communicated to people. Even if they're not followers of Christ, Jesus says, if they cast out demons in my name, it's okay. Whoever is not against us is with us, is what he says in that place. So doing things in the name of Christ or the power of Christ's name being shown through our lives you can raise the dead. It doesn't mean from your heart you sincerely believe in Christ and He is your Lord. It doesn't mean that. It just means the name of Christ is powerful. So the question is, Who enters the kingdom of heaven? Jesus declares in this place, it's not 50% of the church. It's not 30% of the church. Majority of who we call the physical church, people who claim to be Christians, will actually end up not believing. There was actually... A survey done by Ligonier Ministries, and you could actually go see it, right? And it was surveying a bunch of evangelicals. What it found is about 60% do not believe in the deity of Christ. About like 50-something percent actually believe if you're Islam, Judy, uh, like a, a, a Judaism follower, a Jew, or an actual Christian of any format, you will be saved. They actually believe the Bible should be updated right now for different things that are happening in the world. Which is a huge departure from God being our Lord, Jesus being our Lord, and us dictating to Him what terms we want to follow. These surveys show the exact way that Christians call themselves Christians. And I, I didn't say every Christian that calls themselves Christians. I said people who call themselves evangelicals believe those things. Which means there's like zero place for the Word of God in the Church of God. When we think of it as just physical collection of people. So you know what that means? It just simply means being an evangelical does not save you. 
belonging to a particular church does not save you. It doesn't. Because Christianity is an individual-based spiritual belief. The Church of Christ is not a collection of people in a building. No, the Church of Christ is the collection of the true believers of Christ, whom God knows. In every church that we have. A Christian is someone who follows after Christ, not someone who belongs to a certain church as a member. Yes, Christians are members of churches. They're, that's actually a good thing. That's actually obeying the scripture to do that. We've talked about that repeatedly in this place. But belonging to a church does not make a person a Christian. It's not, it's not like, okay, I'm excited about what I'm going to do after the sermon. I'm excited about the rest of my life. I'm excited about college. I'm excited about the career that I'm going to have. I'm excited about all these activities, vacations, traveling, all these things about life. But as far as Christianity is concerned, I've got it on automatic. I show up on Sundays. I do the things you tell me to do. Literally not involved in my heart or in my brain or in my body. But the Word of God calls us, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Do not be conformed to the desires of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is literally your spiritual worship. God expects us to worship Him with our bodies all day long for the rest of our lives in truth by a transformed mind according to God's Word. So who enters the kingdom of God? Jesus teaches us, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The people who are saved are people who are transformed and live by doing the will of God in their lives for the rest of their lives because of that transformation. And guess what? These people will fail again and again and again and again, 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 again to do the will of God. That's why they kneel down. They ask for forgiveness for their sins. And they ask for God to give them His Spirit so that they may be able to do God's will tomorrow better. And guess what? These people, whether they're crawling, walking, or running in their journey with Christ, will get better and better and better and better at it. People who are deceiving themselves and treating Christianity as a whatever, brain-dead thing to do, how could they change? They don't believe in it. They're just doing external things. Their heart is weighed down by the cares of this life, whatever they desire or what the devil is leading them to do. That's the point. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are to be changed as we do His will, as we obey God, listen to God. We come back to the Bible. We pray to the Lord. You just don't pray and read the Bible and just all of a sudden your life is changed. That's not how it works. You come to the Bible because you're desperate. You want to know what the will of the Lord is. You kneel down to pray because you cannot wait to spend time with your Father. Jesus said, when I told you I'm going to the Father, your hearts were sad. But if you really loved me, you would have rejoiced for me. Because he said, the Father is greater than I. And the first part of his prayer is, Father, bring me back to the glory I had with you before the foundation of the earth. You know what that sounds like? 
Jesus who is homesick. He loves his father. He, he cannot stand above all things, beyond even the cross and the pain that he has to go through in this world. The one thing he cares about is, I want to be where my father is. That's what prayer is. We're called to spend intimate time. Jesus says, don't do it in public. That's just such a broken reality. To pray so that other people would think you're an amazing prayer person, whatever. That is why we kneel down. We want to spend that time with the Lord. And in spending that time with the Lord, we learn who He is. We receive the Spirit of God that is going to enable us to live in fellowship with God throughout. Prayer kind of gives us this intimate relationship and also extends that intimate relationship into the rest of our lives. That's what prayer is for. It's not a brain dead, okay, Father, thank you for the food. That's not it. I mean, think about yourself. You don't even respect that kind of religion, do you? You don't. I mean, why do you love your relationships with your, with your friends in school? Because it costs you something. It means something. It's, it's literal. You spend a lot of time thinking about it. You spend a lot, a lot of time trying, trying to impress other people. It gives you value. It gives you meaning, right? It has meaning. If you keep those relationships going, those friends are going to be colleagues. Those friends are going to be lifelong friends. They are going to be, I don't know, there when you're going through life. That's why you value it. If you do the opposite of that with your relationship with God, how can you value that relationship? It means nothing. If, if I just kneel down and say a bunch of words and get up, if that's prayer, why would I care about my relationship with God? If I kneel down because He matters, if I kneel down and the Lord helps me do His will, if I kneel down and I can communicate the deepest things that I'm going through, if I kneel down and say to the Lord, Lord, when I talk to people, I don't even see myself loving them. You need to help me because I'm struggling here. If the next day God enables me according to His word and according to the prayer, He responds to it and I see myself loving people more, then prayer matters. If it's just a brain dead thing where I just say a bunch of stuff, get up, I'm the same old person. It doesn't mean anything. Even when I try to communicate the word of God to other people, it has zero power. All they could do is laugh at me or point out that I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I don't even have this thing figured out. I didn't even spend enough time in the word to weed out the obvious realities. Then it shows that I'm an insincere believer. It shows that this relationship will have zero meaning for me. So I'm asking you, in order to even respect your own time, respect yourself even, do not hold on to the relationship you have with God as if it's an auxiliary thing. It's not the person you want to avoid in life. It's, it's not the person who speaks this old archaic things in your life, it makes it really hard for you to live your life. That's not who Christ is. Christ is here to change your life. So Jesus says, those who are going to be saved are those who do the will of my Father. What is the will of God's 
what is the will of God, the, our Father in heaven? Jesus taught us moral requirements of the whole Old Testament still hold until the end of time. So obviously, the Old Testament contains God's will for us according to Christ. Even when Jesus taught this entire sermon, everything he taught us, he pulled out of the Old Testament. He didn't come up with new ideas. This idea about false prophets, guess what? God was dealing with them in the Old Testament. If you want to know what a false prophet looks like, it's people who used to say peace, peace to people when God was actually against people. So you will get the full picture of what Jesus is saying if you go to the Old Testament. So one place to find God's will is in the Old Testament. Not only that, the Old Testament was written over almost 3,500 years. It's a long history of what it, what it is like to be a human and fail God over and over again and learn from it. It's a place where you can see God's goodness no matter how many times Christians or believers or followers or Israel fails. God is faithful to His covenant, to His promises. That's the fulfillment that comes through Christ, comes through that. And the Old Testament is the only way you're going to find evidences for the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah that God has been prom promising. And then think about things like Proverbs. I love Proverbs. Psalms. You're going through a hard time today? You think God doesn't care? Go to the Psalms. He does care. Saints go through all kinds of life. You're excited today? You think God is like going to knock you down and say, how, how dare you get excited? Go to the song. You're supposed to sing and praise the Lord and enjoy your life and show your joy to the rest of the people in the world without losing grip on the reality of God being God. The Psalms, the Proverbs, ideas on everything in life. Don't hang out with people that are up to no good. That's how, like, actually Proverbs starts. My son, do not go with these people that tell you, let us steal stuff and share the goods and live together. Don't do that. You're a teenager. Don't hang out with the wrong crowd. That's what God is saying. And he's saying, my son, which includes my daughter, by the way. God speaks to you as children in the Old Testament, as well as in the New. If we dismiss the Old Testament as being old, is just forgotten, you have no place to put yourself. You have no clue what the New Testament is saying. So that's where the will of God is. Okay, how about the New Testament? The New Testament is where Jesus spoke, meaning the fullest revelation of who God is, is found in the New Testament. No matter how hard the prophets tried, no matter how hard the Old Testament saints tried, they didn't have the full picture of who God is. But the Son of God, who came from God, the only one who's seen God, who is God, has revealed Him to, our, to us. And then He left 12 apostles to teach and start the church. He's given them authority to speak for God. So the rest of the New Testament is explaining to us what, what Jesus taught, what the Old Testament taught, and how Christians can live according to everything God has revealed in the Scriptures as Christians. So it's a beautiful picture 
of showing us the whole scripture is screaming out to us the will of God that we must live. So it's amazing what Christ is teaching in this place. Jesus doesn't just say, don't just call me Lord, Lord. Uh, many people that are going to call me Lord, Lord are going to end up in hell eventually and you have nothing you could do about it. He doesn't say that. He says, in sincere faith, do not be deceived by it. Don't live it for a day, for a week. Don't, don't cheat yourself. God doesn't get, like, I don't know, doesn't lose anything just because we cheat ourselves. Just because we behave, behave as insincere believers, God is God. If you become a righteous person, you follow His will. You don't do anything for God, by the way. You don't change Him. You don't make anything happen for Him. God cannot be served by human hands. God Himself provides for us what we eat, what we drink, His Spirit, truth, reality, life. He's the giver, not us. So whether we're righteous or unrighteous, we add nothing or subtract nothing from God. If we're righteous or not, it means everything for our lives. Jesus started by the Beatitude telling, telling us, Blessed, happy, fully joyful are those who mourn and who are spiritually poor, who are peacemakers, who literally give up their rights and are generous towards other people. Happy are they. How could I be happy when I'm mourning, when I'm actually struggling that there is no spiritual like riches that I have? How could I be happy? You're happy if you seek righteousness because God rewards those who seek righteousness. In this world, everybody is seeking what makes them happy. Everybody is seeking, oh, why are you doing this? I know it's wrong, but I did it because I wanted to. You know, you could actually say no to your wants. Why did you do this? This is destructive to you because I felt like it. You know you could say no to your emotions. You're a human being. Animals could say no to their emotions. Like grown up animals will teach their young not to, be follow, to follow their own emotions and their own impulses. Let alone humans created in the image of God. Jesus is saying seek after the righteousness God gives you will find the happiness that you're seeking for because God knows everybody seeks for happiness. But it cannot be found from any source but God who gives that happiness to us. So Jesus illustrates this point to us very clearly, very simply. And as we close, I want us to see the last point. So Jesus goes on from here to say, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and the great was the fall of it. 
Simply, this picture is very simple. Two people. He wants us to take the picture of these two people who set out to build houses. What do they have in common? One, location. How do I know that? The same stuff happened to both. Second thing, they built the same house. Because the difference, Jesus says, is just the foundation they built it on. One house held up, the other one was a disaster. I mean, a house is a shelter. If when the rain comes, the floods show up and actually winds are there, if it falls, you wasted your money on building that house. Jesus is not saying the same thing now. Earlier, he was talking about false confession. Meaningless confession does not save you. Right now, you know what he's saying? You hear the words of Christ and you just say, I'm just going to get up and do it. You're not going to end up doing God's will. He's saying, if your foundation is not the right type of foundation, if you don't start with true faith again, right? Yet, you think by doing stuff, you are compensating for lack of faith or your insincere belief in God. Again, that's a fail. So what happened to the first group? The first group confessed something that is not true, lived as if it is true. They deceived themselves from their very confession and insincerity. The second group tries to compensate for their insincere faith by doing God's will according to their own understanding. Where did you get that from? Just verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who hears the Sermon on the Mount and puts it into action, that's the foundation, that is the rock. It doesn't, the second person hears the words like that as well. It's like a wise man, he says, but uh, who built his house on the rock. But later on in 20, um, sorry. In 26, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built their house with zero foundation. What's the difference between those, these two believers? There are believers who hear the words of Christ. These could be believers who know doctrine in and out completely. Right? So the solution to when I said, do not have an insincere faith in Christ, you could be like, oh yeah, he's serious. Like, this is serious. This could keep me from heaven. And you could be so invested in the Bible that you could know it. You could be so invested in church life so that like, you'll be here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day. You could be so concerned with the work of the kingdom, you're just consumed by it all. It just goes beyond what scripture describes to be the Christian life. Jesus is saying, that's not what I mean. That's not what the Christian life looks like. It's not it. It's about what did Jesus say and obeying what Jesus says. Let me clarify it a little bit more. It's not about you come to the word of God and you, says, you say to yourself, oh, God says my plans for you is to prosper you, to give you life, for you to do this and that. 
You pick that? I like that. Oh, Christ died for us, and because of the mercy of God, we are saved. Oh, I picked that. I like that. And Jesus starts in this place and comes and says, what you think in your heart, I'm going to judge you for it. Be right with me. When Jesus comes in and says, you have to suffer for my name. When Jesus comes in and says, you can't judge others if you're truly my follower, that doesn't square well with me. If you're doing that, you're picking and choosing what to obey and what not to obey. You're not trying to do what Jesus commands. What did Jesus say to us? Not even a dot or an iota will pass away from the law, meaning Jesus valued all of the law. He was the only one that fulfilled the law of God. As Christians, we are to value all of Jesus' picture of what Christian life looks like. We have to value all of Scripture according to the new test, like the new covenant, of course. You don't have to go back and do temple worship and all that. We've talked about that the other time, right? What Jesus is calling us to do is make sure you're not an, a sexually immoral person. But guess what happens? When you try to do the will of Christ, you will fail, as I said again. And you come, you repent, and you ask the Lord to give you a new heart and to lead you in the way of righteousness over and over and over again until the end of your life. If this Christian life sounds gloomy to you, man, this is hard work. I thought Christianity was a Sunday thing. You're in danger. I'm, I'm telling myself also in this place. Jesus says, you're in danger. You're going to recognize a great fall in the end. Not only on judgment day, by the way. When you're sick, you're going to recognize your faith does not stand. When COVID shows up and everything is locked up, your faith cannot stand. Even when you're rich and comfortable, your faith cannot stand if you don't have a real faith. There's nothing wrong with being rich or whatever as a Christian. Nothing. The only issue is if you are rich and it actually destroys your faith, it actually makes you independent of Christ, Christ is no longer your Lord because you can do everything by yourself, it's over for you. It choked your faith. When you're being tested, if you fail, you will fail if you don't have the right foundation. So unless we do the will of Christ, meaning everything Christ said to us, everything Christ taught us, everything Christ is leading us in really matters, you will have a faith that will fail. And it's not faith in the sight of God to begin with. This is what Jesus is teaching to us. Isn't that scary? The people heard the teachings of Christ and they said, this teaching has authority in it that we've never seen. When I speak so boldly, don't feel like I'm speaking from myself or I have some kind of authority. I'm nobody. I'm telling you though, 
I'm trying to present as faithfully as I can. And I know God uses common means of grace like sinners like me to communicate his word. That's the only way he chose to do it. We should listen to what the Son of God is preaching to us. I'm telling you, he has authority. I'm telling you, he died for our souls, not for us to be like whatever we want to, but to be freed from sin and follow his lead into eternal life. So God's plan for you is to forgive you of your sin by the blood of Christ and to justify you and to cleanse you of your sin, your behavior, your thinking, your emotions, all of these, to, to conform them to His will, to conform them, to conform us to the image of His Son, for us to live a life that is like Him. And eventually, this body of sin that you're in, this, this body that keeps making you fail at doing the will of God, it will die. And you will have a new body. God is meaning to sanctify you in the soul as well as in the body and spirit, to give you a new spirit. He's going to destroy this body of sin and give you an eternal body that could dwell in His presence without perishing, turning to dust. Even a body, the righteous shall literally shine like the sun, is what is written about the new body, the new kingdom life of Christians. He wants to get rid of the sin in you and He actually will accomplish it. And not only in you, He will literally burn up the entire universe as you see it and all the sins that are in it, all the defilement that is in it and put in its place new earth and new heaven. After that point, no evildoer will continue. No insincere follower of Christ is going to be forced to live with God. None. This life as you know it, the things that really matter, that really make us popular, that really make us feel secure, they will all perish. They will not continue. You know what's going to happen? The thing we value as a society and the word of God, the will of God are going to be the same when we are in this new bodies, a new kingdom. Righteousness and joy are not going to be at odds with one another. Value systems, like who is going to be in control of what, who is going to inherit what, is going to align with righteousness and the will of God and the work of God. God has decided a day on which He will judge all of us and judgment is going to start in the household of God. So the Sermon on the Mount communicated to us what kind of citizens the kingdom of heaven has. People who know their spiritual poverty. People who know without Christ they have no hope. Bank on that. You cannot do any of the things that Christ preaches in this place unless you recognize you can't do it. Not, not when you first believe only. Today you can't do it. Today you need Christ. Today you need to be saved. Today. 
The scriptures say we are saved by the Gospels and we are being saved by the Gospels and we will be saved eventually by the Gospels. The wrath of God is coming. We will be saved by the life of Christ from the wrath of God. We are already saved from sin as we live this life by the blood of Christ. We are being rescued from the work of the devil every day by the work of God by the protection of God. So we pray to God, protect us from the evil one, from the devil every day. Keep us from temptation every day. Empower us to do your will. I'm going to read one scripture as I conclude. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Philippians 3, 8. I would love for you guys to go there. I would definitely give you this scripture as a week-long meditation scripture. Philippians 3, 8, all the way through 14. Definitely a beautiful place. I would even encourage you to read the whole, the whole book. It's such a short book that you can read in one sitting in a short period of time says this, verse 8, Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying in this place, by doing a bunch of stuff that I may be saved. He's saying, by the righteousness of God, in faith, that I may really experience what Jesus himself has experienced. He's not saying, I want to know what the resurrection of Christ looks like so that I can understand it logically. He's not saying that. He's saying, I want to know his sufferings by suffering myself. And I want to know about his resurrected life by living in holiness myself. But this holiness and this righteousness, it cannot come from me. And I cannot know God if I just pursue my own methods. I want to know him in this intimate way of dying to my desires, to myself, to what people expect me to be, what I think will give me security in this life, or fame, or whatever you call it. I want to lay down my treasures on the earth, and I want to seek or put together my treasures in heaven. I want to save them in heaven. I want to do what is pleasing to God instead of what is pleasing to man. In that way, he says, by faith in Christ, by the work that God does, by the righteousness that God gives, we are to attain resurrection from the dead ourselves, not only in our spiritual lives, but also in our literal bodies into a new life. 
And he continues, and this is where we close. 12. Not that, brothers, I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on, he says, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies and straining what lies behind, sorry, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has called you to heaven. Do not be weighed down on earth. Do not be slaves of your sinful nature, your old nature. Do not be slaves of the flesh. Do not be slaves of the world. Do not be slaves of the devil who rules over this earth. Be the true followers and servants and slaves of the living Christ. And ultimately, as the sermon ends, Jesus said one thing you might not have noticed. I never knew you. For Jesus, the issue is, you never loved me. Whoever loves me will do all the things that I tell him. That's what the issue is. So we talked about love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength, and with all your soul, with all your heart, is given to us. That means all of your life, all of your being. Love God. Love the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. And you shall know what to do in your life. So I invite everyone to come back to the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of their lives. To constantly sit before the Lord and learn what it teaches. And to go further into the rest of what the scripture has to teach us. But above all things, I want us all to remember, it's true believers in Christ who love the Lord that will inherit eternal life. Whoever does not love the Lord, what does the scripture say? Let him be accursed. It's not optional. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we know you as the Savior of our souls, as the one who gave up himself, who gave up his position in heaven and humbled himself to be to come to the earth in the form of a man, literally becoming human, leaving your glory on in heaven, not losing your nature as being God, not becoming just a human, but fully God, fully human, perfectly God, perfectly human. You did that for us. You condescended to your creatures for us. You suffered want and thirst, and you suffered on that cross. You suffered rejection. You suffered hate. And ultimately, that hate led to murder, which killed you. You are buried even though you were sinless and perfect and loving to everyone. Your cross is not in vain. You were raised on the third day, Lord. That's what we believe about you. Let us not come to this place and feel like you are a demanding Lord. 
Let us not come to this place and feel like, I don't want to talk about this kind of serious conversation. Let us really recognize you are that very tender, loving, self-sacrificing Christ talking to us in this place. But you are a holy God. Your cross doesn't show what other people did to you, but what God planned before the beginning of time to show His righteousness to us, to show us that you are a righteous God who does not just remove guilt and put it under this universal rug or something, but you deal with every one of our sins in the death of Christ or in the punishment of sinners in hell. So we ask you today, Lord, open our hearts and our eyes to recognize these are the words of love. I may have presented them in the wrong tone. I do not do that because I like being that way. I do that because our lives depend on them. If I love anyone in this place, I should tell them the truth according to your words, Lord. But I know you are perfect and you presented them in a perfect way to our hearts through your spirits. I know that, Lord. Let us wake up to your loving directions, to your loving sermon, to your loving communication to our hearts, to transform our hearts, to give us a life that is eternal, to give us peace in you because we have no peace in this world, to give us life and Life abundant in your preaching, in your word, in your life, in your example as we follow you and as we obey you as our Lord. So Father, we pray that you are the Lord of this church and every individual person in this place, even those that are not present today. We pray that you open our hearts. We pray that you give us the joy of salvation, our salvation that we may be renewed in our hearts to pursue you with all our being, that we may love you and love others as ourselves, that we may truly rejoice to do your will, Lord. Father, after all this, no one can do anything to change anything about us, but you can do all things, Lord. You can transform our lives. You can grip our hearts. You can affect every day of our lives. You can change the environment around us. You can change what we know. You can change how we behave. You can change our sinful nature. You could put to death the sins of our lives, the earthly things about us as we participate in that journey, knowing that you are already at work in us. As it says, as we work out our salvation in fear, in fear and trembling, as Paul in this place communicates, I want to be found in Christ. I want the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know Him by a death like Him, by suffering like Him, by denying myself like He lived. And I want to live a resurrected life of loving and being kind towards others bearing the fruit of the Spirit every day of my life and improving and getting better at it, a life of righteousness that comes from God. And Paul says, I am not perfect. I have not reached this. But knowing that I have done so much so far and the Lord has done so many miraculous things in my life, I literally give 
no taught to those things in the past, and I stretch forward to the upward calling of Christ. Lord, help us lay up treasures in heaven where you are seated. Help us look upwards to the calling that you have as we love one another horizontally, as we live our lives in a real sense, according to your words, every second of our week and our life. Lord, we know, as you said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and knock. It will be open, it will be given to you. You will find. And we ask in faith, knowing that more than these things you will fulfill, you will do for us. Lord, knowing that your Spirit is already interceding for us for more things than we are able to put into words. Lord, and we thank you for this. And we are so grateful that you are our Father. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you are our Lord. We are so grateful, Holy Spirit, that you love us and you dwell with us. And even though our actions grieve you, you do not leave us alone as orphans. That today you are patient with us. You love us and you empower us to do the will of God, so that Christ may be glorified. Christ may be shown to be our Lord as we love one another and live in harmony with one another. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these things. I pray you go out with each and every one of us and bless our lives by your presence and transform us into the image of Christ through the easy things that we go through life and through the hard things we go through life. Because nothing is more important than our conformity to the image of Christ. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. This will be the end of our service.